Hey guys, what's up? It is week 225. I'm going to start this out with the new release from Severn Films. This is the, the Kinky Collection, the uh, Eloy Del La Inglesia. It's three films. They're all kind of like delinquent kind of films. I think that's what kinky actually means is delinquent. Um, and this is a trilogy of movies. The first one in here is uh, Navajeros. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with this director, um, for the horror crowd and kind of the most mainstream movie for what he did in the United States at least is the is Cannibal Man, which also Severn put out it's a really good movie that ended up on the video nasties list that it's got a lot more than just your kind of shock value horror film um but all his films have a shocking quality uh, severin also put out no one uh, heard the scream um which is uh where no one hears the scream which uh, i reviewed a couple weeks back so this kinky collection this is really interesting um and it, it's got a lot of stuff about, you know, political stuff. And it it was made, like, kind of in response, I believe, to the Franco era. So, like, every time you watch a lot of these Spanish films, that always comes up. They always have a lot of political stuff within their films. So, um, the star of this is actually, like, um, a real-life heroin addict that uh, Eloy was having a relationship with. And um, that, that's, it just, it, um, the whole situation here, like, it's, it's really... Part of the real story is that he was actually having a relationship with them. They were both having a downward spiral and the heroin abuse and all that kind of stuff. So it gets really kind of scary and murky in there and stuff. And considering that Eloy was like 39, like in his late 30s when he started making these movies and the kid was like in his late teens, like 16, 17, you're just like, I know it's a different time. Still a little bothersome and crazy and everything like that. But uh, yeah, so Navajaros, um, this one, it follows the story of a, a young kid who, his his life's pretty miserable. His, um, his mother is a prostitute. He has no contact with her. His older brother was just recently incarcerated in jail. And he, him and three of his friends kind of have this gang where they do petty crime. They've been in and out of prison forever. And uh, soon enough, their crimes start to escalate. They start to rip off the wrong people. And, of course, you know, this is exactly going to end in tragedy. He starts a relationship with Ilsa Vega, who is this older kind of woman. Uh, she's also a prostitute, and uh, she's in Bringing the Head of Alfredo Garcia. She's really good in this role. And she's like a motherly figure, but also a loving, uh, kind of a lover of his. So um, this movie has no shame in, like, showing, like, full frontal nudity on anybody. So it's not, it's, uh, it's explicit in the sex and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of interesting documentaries and featurettes on this release talking about how his films were very political and they had these messages but they're all done through a lens of sexuality and that's how he he kind of tackled and looked at these things which I, I found interesting and yet it is very true um you know sometimes people are just about um the the social messages or, or showing something that is real but also you know it has to go through you know their lens as well and that, that made a lot of sense while watching this because like there's a lot of sexually explicit material and even sometimes the um graphic stuff that is uh is really awful um is portrayed um erotic um like some of the like rape stuff in the movies and stuff it seems like it almost has an erotic touch which is really kind of awful um so but the movie is very interesting and uh it's definitely kind of making uh it's on the side you sympathize with the kids the delinquents a lot of times you're there and and in the first one especially um it's definitely this kind of rise to like fame but also he, he's a complicated character and he has that machismo kind of quality about him but there's times when he does things his him and his gang that uh could be looked at as in a positive light um 
the ending is, is pretty brutal and shocking, but you know it's coming. The music in the movie, um, it plays this kind of one song constantly in Navajaro, so it gets stuck in your head. Um, it's a really great song. I'll probably try to play it through this, throughout this, but um, it's a very memorable kind of song and touching, and it, you know, of course, is going to end with that and that tragedy and everything like that. Um, there's a couple moments when one of the characters actually was shot uh, with a sporadic machine gun spray where I was like, Oh, wow. Um, it just felt real, real and uh, really downbeat. But yeah, so there's like a lot of interesting qualities in this one. It also has the reporter aspect, which seems to be kind of a reoccurring theme in his movies with uh, the media and reporter and stuff and, and kind of an outsider kind of studying without. And of course, they point out that that's more of so him, um, the director himself, kind of putting himself in the story. But uh, that, that's on the first disc along with all the uh, documentaries. So they have Jose Santa Cristina on Eloy de la Iglesia, interview with actor Jose Sacristian, and he kind of talks about meeting him and working with him, and he plays the reporter in Navajaros. And then we have Blood in the Streets, the kinky film phenomenon, interview with uh, kinky historians Mary Kuzna and Tom Whitaker. That was also very interesting. They kind of break down the history and who the people were inspired by in real life and, and what happened to all of them. They all had kind of tragic ends, which is really kind of sad you know obviously they came from that world and they were put into films and they had this this small uh window of fame and then you kind of just see where they ended up afterwards and stuff very interesting and uh you know like any other kind of small little lived film genre of you know five to ten years this one only lasted ten years and, and you know some people say like the jolly and stuff it's just it's kind of amazing to think when you look back and you see these little pockets of different kind of films and then of course we have queerness crime and uh the best um, best gig conflict in the kinky films of Eloy Del Inglésia, a panel with scholars Alejandro uh, Merlano, Paul Julian Smith, and moderated by Evan Purcell of Ask Anybody. And this is just them kind of focusing on the homosexual aspects of the films and whatnot, breaking it down and bringing up a lot of questions. And they actually have somebody from that country that is uh, kind of a historian in those uh, in the Spanish cinema in general, so it really helps with that. And they kind of bounce a lot of ideas off each other, and I thought it was pretty interesting. So all the featurettes on here are interesting as well, and I, I bring those all up now because they're on the first disc with Navajaros, and then the second disc is El Pico 1 and 2, which I'll get into shortly, so. Okay. Nos metemos un pico. Prepara la vena, cochino. Ay, porque tengo ese temor. Ay, si no nunca aburrido. ¿Sabes qué quiere decir esto? Mm, ni idea. Muera la policía y viva la golfería. So the Spanish delinquent film emerges at the same time as other delinquent films. Over the Edge, The Warriors in America, Scum in Great Britain, Christiana F in Germany. Almost all of the young stars who were associated with Cine Kinky died tragically young. So these films really do stand as, as their legacy. By 1992, um, the director, Lloyd de la Iglesia, was living um, penniless in an apartment and um, without water or electricity. So I guess now we're going to talk a little bit about El Pico 1, which uh, this one is probably the most interesting on paper for me, the story-wise. I thought it was really, really kind of crazy and, and tackled a lot of issues. So um, you're looking at the Spanish climate, the political climate at the time, and we have kind of a socialist movement in the government, and we have this kind of, um, I, I would say, 
more of a Tolterian kind of um, uh, conservative, almost like um, police kind of group where, you know, it's more of a... Um, aggressive kind of, uh, I guess, law and order kind of side as well. Um, and there's two characters that are the sons of one of the major politicians and a police captain. Um, and, and the same star from the uh, first film is also in this one as the, as the main star. So these two are best friends. They keep it secret and they kind of fall into this rabbit hole of drugs and everything like that and become criminals. So um, this one, it, it, it brings up when the father, who is the, the father of the police captain, and the whole family structure is struggling. They have a dying mother. They have two kids. But um, there, there's obviously a age gap, a generation gap between father and son on, on all both the parents and everything like that. And um, I love that the idea that these kind of two different groups of parties have to, this dichotomy, have to come together and try to help their kids throughout the situation. But it, it's a dark movie, and um, I mean... The MVP performance in here, I believe, is the police captain because he goes through so many different emotions with this with his son, and he's going through so much, and you see him kind of learn that the system that he's a part of is complete bullshit. And there's these characters within the movie that are basically playing both sides. They work for the police, they're informants, but they sell drugs, and they get that's how they make their living. And it's just a really kind of bleak, dark thing. And those people are looked at in the film as probably the most despicable. And then when you watch El Pico too, you know it's kind of interesting. Works one of the main characters lands in the movie to be honest and you're like oh wow that's such a dark turn um and really just kind of sad and you kind of guess who would do that and then you kind of see what the characters have been through and you can kind of understand to a certain extent anything for survival right um so yeah, I found this one really kind of interesting in that, um, and I like the relationship that is, it's, it's kind of a relationship of, uh, not convenience, but necessity, definitely necessity, and uh, I, I found this one interesting, and I think it, it says a lot, too, and it brings up a lot of questions about everything, and um, the ending is brilliant. I, I love the that, um, and I should bring up the three triangle hats that all the officers wear, because there's a movie, a Spanish film I'm going to talk about a little later, that also the officers wear the three triangle hats, and that's kind of a reference, and even at the end what uh the police captain does with that hat and what he puts in it and what he, he were I, like i see it's so hard to tiptoe around this stuff and talk about those kind of things in here without spoiling completely but um that, that's some really interesting aspect and um which makes it very strange that they made a sequel because this movie wraps up perfectly um there's tragedy all the characters kind of have their their deal and their their conflicts and everything and it brings up so many questions and then answers a lot of them and it feels very strange that a sequel would be so now we're going to get into El Pico 2, which I believe is the most exploitative out of the three, I would say. Um, it becomes a prison drama, which is very kind of a... The director being a homosexual and having these homosexual homosexual aspects to his films and everything and being involved with the lead, it, it makes sense that he would kind of go to the prison aspect. And his movies, to me, Eloy Del Iglesia is like the perfect combination. And I know that they're not all-out exploitation movies, but a lot of exploitation movies would answer and tackle these issues and, and stuff that a lot of other films wouldn't. And I feel that his movies are that right mixture of exploitation and sensationalism and um, actual political kind of ideology and messaging and all that kind of stuff within the movies you know it's it's uh saying a lot of things at the same time as just being exploit exploitative but also um being impactful at the same time and emotional so it's um kind of the perfect mixture to grab uh an audience to be honest and i guess this is kind of what these kinky movies are going for 
But um, as far as this one is concerned, uh, basically the main character ends up having to go to prison against his father's, you know, best tries to try to cover everything up. But uh, they recast the father, and I must admit it was a little jarring because the performance and it was so attached to the character in the first film and the relationship between father and son and everything that in this one, when they recast him, you're just it takes a lot a while to adjust, and I don't think I ever fully adjusted. Although both performances are good, it was very strange to see that recasting of the the actor in this one to a while. I was like, what the hell? And this one, we have also a media kind of angle here where the media is kind of being involved and changing a lot of the things and, and kind of screwing up everything and just not letting things rest and trying to show obvious uh, corruption within the police force and everything like that. And you never, you get the idea that the media never really cares about, you know, um, bringing down a corrupt um, a, a gr group or anything or any perfect side. They just want the sensationalism. They want the ratings. And you really kind of despise the, the media characters in this. Um, so the prison stuff, there's some really, of course, uh, homoeroticism going on in this prison, and there's a group of bad guys that are similar to uh, the Shawshank re uh, um, uh, Redemption characters, the sisters, but these guys provide drugs. And there is a literally like a, a forced, you know, it, it's not necessarily a rape, but it might as well be where they offer drugs and um, a really nasty scene where a character pats another character down to make sure that he didn't steal the drugs that they were supposed to get and realizes that he's been gang raped by reaching down the back of his pants and pulling out a handful of blood. And I was just, just like, oh, wow, man, that is some nasty prison-style film stuff. But uh, that, that pursues is like the slow-motion ridiculous fight that... It, it, and and I don't want to be negative about it, but it just seems so over the top for how uh, dramatic the movie is. Even though, like I said, they do have an exploitation flair. It just seems a little bit comical in, in the moment here. Um, so uh, this one, again, of course, it's going to end in, in kind of a, a, a dark way. Um, really dark, actually. And it, it, they bring up a lot of questions in these movies about relationships and, and you know... Um, like friend relationships at the same time too because this one brings up the idea that he has a, a prison friend that gets involved with a prostitute friend from the first film that was also involved with the, the two from the first movie so um, and it flashes back to the original movie quite a bit and brings up a lot of memories and everything but it's just again a lot of corruption going on by the, the police forces and there's a, a great scene in here that's just a small little scene but it says it says volumes where um, uh, the main character is being arrested he's being kind of transported to jail and he has cuffs on and one of the, the guards or the police officer says you're the son of a, a captain right and he says yep and he takes his cuffs off I think it's before he goes into court you know obviously so he's not wearing cuffs when he walks and he looks better um, so it's just that kind of special treatment thing going on so anyways I thought these were really great really entertaining um, the, the run times are, they're all about almost two hours long they are kind of an epic but um, there's some crazy action in the first one uh, Navajaro's I would say is more the crime film um, the other two are more drama oriented drug stuff and there's some excessive drug use in El Pico 1 and 2 especially 2 I felt this scene like it it hurt. It literally hurt me, and it looks like real drug use, of course, with the heroin and how they have the injection and they zoom in on the needle and it's going in and out and in and out. I imagine that's just the rushes and stuff with whatnot. I mean, I've never used heroin. I've known quite a few people that have been addicted to heroin. I think that goes without saying nowadays that it just happens to everyone, every social class and everything like that. But, um, Anyways, uh, it was just, uh, these were really interesting and really well made. And uh, right now with, uh, you know, uh, it's always so funny. It's like every reviewer's got to bring up, in today's climate, or right now... It 
it resonates, but it does resonate, you know? Uh, and it just seems like less that movies were so predicting the future is that we just kind of always inherently have the same freaking problems. But uh, yeah, El Pico 1 and 2 and Navajaros from the Kinky Collection by Eloy Del Inglesia. Great stuff. Uh, great releases. They all look good. They sound good. Um, great soundtracks, too, especially Navajaros. It's got a really awesome song that just catches your attention um and the end of that one actually has some real on um, what happened to one of the people that it's kind of based on it, it's some of that stuff too and a lot of the reoccurring same actors pop up here and there um the kid from um navajaros pops up in el pico too with the missing tooth and he was kind of one of the big stars of the kinky uh the um, films as was the lead in all three movies and then there was another one from a different director that kind of was the other guy besides eloy and Iglesia, who was the face of this genre and they talk a lot about his films although we don't get to see any here hopefully down the line Severn will put out some more of the Eloy Del Inglésio movies they were mentioning in the, the documentaries and everything like that and maybe some more of those kinky films because they are interesting and I enjoyed every single one of them so yeah Okay, this next one here is from Mondo Macabro, and this is The Frenchman's Garden, starring Paul Nashi, also directed by Paul Nashi. I think this was his second film he directed after, was it The Devil's Incarnate or The Inquisitor? I can't remember which, but Paul Nashi is a, a infamous kind of Spanish a horror actor that became a director. He obviously was famous for playing Valdemar Denzinski, the werewolf um, in all those kind of Spanish werewolf films. The dude is like the Long Chaney uh, senior of uh, Spanish horror films. He's played all the different kinds of monsters. I've covered a few of his films here and there. The Frenchman's Garden was a little bit different for him. Um, it wasn't your all-in-out monster mash or, or, you know, super gothic horror film or anything like that. This is a period piece, of course, and it's based on a true story. It is a true story. I believe it's a period piece, and I can't remember when, but it's about this guy, the Spanish gentleman. Um, was he French? or I, I think he might have been. I can't 100% remember. Um, but he was a, a French that and he ran um, this kind of uh, gambling den, this brothel in Spain, and it's based on this real life killer. Um, so, right when this movie opened up, um, it had uh, you see these two characters, and it, it's out of context for me because it's just the opening. It's Paul Nash, he's sitting there casually surrounded by guards with the three triangle hats from what they wear in um, the um, kinky films, of course. Um, that I just covered, and he is um, eating this chicken nonchalantly, you know, just not a care in the world, relaxed, drinking wine. There's an older man across from him that looks completely guilt-ridden, scared, just broken down. And then uh, it's just this dichotomy of between them, right? The differences and everything like that. So these parallels, I guess you'll say. Not parallels, dichotomy, yeah, the dichotomy between them. Parallels will be the same, whatever. Don't listen to me. I'm an idiot. So anyways, we kind of go in the story about uh, this character in Paul Nashi. Um, this is probably the finest Paul Nashi performance I've ever seen. And I always enjoy him. I love him in Hall of the Devil where he plays all these different characters. Or Horror Rises from the Tomb where he's just like got a bunch of different characters in those gothic settings. Or the Monster Man. He's a good bulky monster in like the Mummy's Revenge or the Beast with the Magic Sword. The Werewolf movies that I've seen. So... Um, Popping in this, it was just a refreshing kind of role. It was just this kind of, I don't want to say down, uh, understated, because it wasn't. It was the perfect amount. But I don't want to say he overacts, because he really doesn't overact. But it wasn't that horror film performance that I'm kind of used to seeing him in. It was like this crime drama, this nasty crime drama. And he plays this master manipulating sociopath who does not care about anyone. Like, he has this wife that he always is from, like, this uh, upper crust kind of background, and he's always sweet-talking her. And she doesn't like him running this kind of gambling uh, prostitution den, but he's just like, 
like it's my money, I've earned it, I want to run it. Um, but when he goes away to that, like in the very beginning of the film, um, he uh, there's these kind of guys that get super rowdy, and they have this girl, um, this uh, this prostitute, and they're mistreating her terribly. And he um, actually um, Paul Nashi comes out. And he um, basically confronts them and says, get out of here. And you look in his eyes and the guy is like a kind of a big, larger life character. Like you think he's going to actually fight him. But looking in Nashi's eyes, he sees something there and he leaves. And you're just like, oh, this guy's tough. We kind of established that Nashi's character is not one to be messed with. Um, he's dangerous. And this character, he backed down and the, his friends say, why'd you do it? He said, he would have killed me. He would have killed me. So, uh, like, you're like, oh, Nashi's kind of cool in this. Maybe, because I, I didn't know the true story. I didn't really know the true story of this. Um, so, Nashi, you're like, oh, so you kind of win him on her side. He defended this prostitute who's being picked on by these these assholes that come right out of, like, the Hounds of Baskersville from Hammer or something. Or, um, what is it, Frankenstein Creative Woman, a Hammer movie or whatever. Very typical kind of asshole kind of characters. <laughs> so, what happens is... Shortly after that, we have um, uh, Nashi's sidekick, who works there as well, who we saw in the beginning with him, um, leading this guy into the Frenchman's Garden, where they have this like kind of like a garden in front of the um, the uh, tavern and everything like that. And Nashi promptly hits this guy in the face with a metal beam, right in the back of the head. And they have this gimmick where they, with this, 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 I don't want to say gimmick. Yeah, it's a gimmick, murdering people. But this whole kind of, uh, this uh, ploy where they, they lure people in with lots of money and take it. And that's their kind of thing. So I was like, oh, wow, that was kind of threw me for a 360 here. So basically the story is Nashi kind of sleeping with these, whoever he wants. And including this woman who comes to him for help that he impregnated. And um, it, what follows is a really awful abortion scene, which I thought was very, very dark and didn't, and maybe kind of, oh man, it was hard to watch. Um, and just kind of manipulates these women and takes advantage of them until the very end. But, uh, the end, his nonchalant acting of just like, eh, whatever the hell, um, is perfect. Uh, they actually, the commentary is, is, is wonderful because it's Troy Haworth and then the two guys from the Nashi cast talk about overkill, which is a compliment because they got, you know, three people that I love here and talk about Paul Nashi. So these guys, talk about them and they, they have a lot of love for the movie and they all put it in the top tier Nashi movies. And, and, um, somebody reads a quote, I believe it's one of the guys from Nashi cast reads a quote from uh, Nashi about the movie. And he says something that's just kind of just about a movie about a loser who realized he was caught and was okay with, it. and he just goes through and he says, no, I wouldn't say, um, this, maybe it's my best movie, but if not, it's in my top two, three movies I've made. And they all were like, agreed, agreed. Would not argue with that. And it's just like, this is done on. I was just super happy with this. I, I love, um, true crime stories and especially when they're well done and they usually are really great when it comes to a kind of like true crime borderlining in that horror area um serial killer crime stories and stuff where like honeymoon killers is wonderful the wolf in the woods is fantastic um all that kind of stuff i really just eat up uh especially lesser known criminals um tenderness of the wolves i think these movies are just fantastic and this one is one of my favorites it's probably do I say it's my favorite Nashi movie that I've seen? And I've not watched all his movies, but everything I've saw has been good to great. I've enjoyed him, um, and I slept on him for way too long. It's like there's some of these people that I just don't. I buy their stuff, and I just don't ever get a chance to watch it. But I, I just was completely neglecting my Nashi for uh, for years until the last five or six years I started watching more. And um, anyways, this is just a fantastic movie, and it's never had a, a proper release in the states. This is finally a release they're putting out. It looks great. It sounds great. Um, the dialogue is great. The act 
acting is great. There's a beautiful kind of folk song made for the movie about the case, and I just loved it. Um, they the, it's just a perfect movie anyways. And there's a great shot at the very end, kind of going over the wall and, and focusing on that last shot. Um, and the weirdest uh, methods of um, death I've ever seen at the very end, and I feel like they got to be accurate to a certain extent. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's a great movie and a one-of-a-kind performance and the difference at the end of uh, Nashi's helper and Nashi himself in the movie are just uh, perfect and explain everything. Anyways, a great movie. Some brutal violence, too. Um, don't want to understate that or undersell that. Some brutal violence, including some guy getting in head, hit in the head with a, a sledgehammer or something, or, or mallet, more so a mallet. And, uh, oh, man, like... The, the, the murders are, are often quick but brutal and realistic and unpleasant as hell. Um, there's a lot of explicit nudity and sex because Nashi, you know, he's sleeping with uh, prostitutes and everything like that. But uh, yeah, just a great film. I uh, really recommend The Frenchman's Garden. Uh, Mondo Macabre did a great job putting this out. And again, I will mention that this is from 1978. I didn't, I bring up 1978 a lot. Man, it is a banger of a year. There's lots of great stuff that came out in 1978, including one of my personal favorites, obviously Dawn of the Dead. And then we have a lot of other movies too. I believe Rabbit counts as 78 as well. So just uh, lots of good stuff that I love from 1978. And Frenchman's Garden is another one to add to that catalog of 78 horror, horror-adjacent movies. Okay, when I watch these newer films, I'll be a little bit more brief on it. I'm sure that people have recently talked these to death. But this is from 2014 by Jennifer Kent. And this is The Babadook, which I don't think I've ever talked about. I think I've mentioned that I did enjoy it. Very cool cover here. Um... So yeah, um, she also did the movie Nightingale, which made my top 10 list of 2019, I believe. You know, it's not necessarily a horror movie, but and it's it's about the most brutal movie I saw that year and the most depressing, uh, for sure. One of them, uh, probably along with Midsommar, has some really depressing moments in it. But man, uh, The Nightingale, a great movie. So uh, The Babadook, um, rewatching this one was kind of, a, kind of a pleasure. And I forgot how short it is. It's only an hour and 33 minutes. Something like this, usually you would guess, is going to be near two hours long. So Australian film. And um, this is a movie, obviously, about grief, you know, and loss and just those kind of heavy mess, heavy things that bear on your soul. And watching this, I know a lot of people complain about the kid just being ungodly annoying and everything like that. I can't stand the kid because the kid obviously has some sort of, you know, like hyperactivity or, or attention deficit disorder, which I actually have ADD, ADHD myself. So I can kind of relate to that kid just being um, a handful. I mean, and a single mother having to deal with all this stuff. You can kind of see that the stress is just building up on top. We have some supernatural horror stuff happening or, you know, this created um, manifestation of grief into an actual creature of sorts, possibly. So we've got lots of stuff going on here. Um, I got to give a top top notch performance by the lead in this. She is fantastic. Um, just a really hard thing to p pull off. So anyways, we have this story of a single mother who lost her father has to take care of kind of a, um, um, a kid who needs a little bit, a special kid, needs a little bit more attention than a lot of the other kids. And obviously he has problems coping with not having a father and just the surroundings and everything like that. Um, so anyways, uh, the, the, she's just really having a hard time. She's never gotten over the death of her husband, as many people probably would never. So um, one day she buys, I, I remember she finds or buys this book, um, The Baba Duke, and they're reading it one night, and um, the kid is obviously having, um, and, and does not doesn't seem like your typical happy ending story, and it ends up being absolutely horrifying. After that, the kid is obsessed with this thing, The Baba Duke, saying The Baba Duke's coming for him at night, and of course strange things start to happen, and you're not, you're always wondering, is it how much of this is psychological, how much is supernatural, or how much is the psychological causing the supernatural, or the supernatural causing the psychological, or they're mixing 
mixing in and, you know, feeding into each other. So it, it's really smart in that aspect, but uh, there's stuff that just happens um, without any explanation. Um, I mean, like there is explanation. There's just stuff that happens without any logical reasoning unless something supernatural is happening, if that makes any sense, um, or something inherently not normal to happen. So I would be on the side that obviously something supernatural is happening or, or creation of the mind creating this kind of stuff. So anyways, um, just the stuff that she goes through. Um, literally, there's some really scary stuff in here. Uh, one point, she's sleep deprived because the the, the kid's freaking out and she's freaking out and, and the Babadook is keeping them up at night and she's watching the television. And a lot of times, there'll be these classic 1920s German expressionism films playing, which is a lot of the look of the movie. If you look at the painting of the house, that dark gray and stuff, you can, you'd be like, well, Tim Burton based all his movies, kind of like Beetlejuice, off that look too. And this movie is definitely inspired. And the Babadook is inspired by the 20s kind of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu kind of style lighting and shadows and creatures and stuff like that. 100% kind of look into that way for sure. And the movie is too. And they even play into that. They're obviously aware of that. Um, so when she's watching television, we have like the, some of these 20s movies playing and they kind of insert the Babadook in there and he fits really well. But the scariest scene is when um, she's staring at the television and they start showing kind of like her neighborhood and the news and they're saying something along the lines of um, a murder, a mother murdered her child today. And then she looks and her house is in the background and it's been all policed off with the tape and she looks in the window of her house and she's looking out the window, smiling at a distance at her through the TV. And I was like, oh my God. That's just awful. That is just the, the the definition of psychological problems. Like, um, you know, uh, just really scary stuff there. But uh, her, like I said, her just constantly never being able to be alone and, and just the, the grief and depression that she's suffering, you legitimately feel it. Like, I was just like, I just don't, I feel bad for both of them. I don't want to be here. I feel awful. And I just am so stressed out just watching this situation. Um, anyways, I think it's a great movie. I, I think it's got a lot to say. Um, uh, Jennifer Ken is obviously a big fan of horror films. She has a lot of inspirations. Like you could see, like has some aspects of Nightmare on Elm Street in here. A lot of, you know, 20s German horror films. And then we have things like, I would even say, I mean, it kind of, Babadook's like an it Freddy Krueger type character, but he's in the shape of kind of a 20s German expressionism a villain or something like that so he's a cool character he, he's really kind of terrifying and at the end the message i would say is something along the lines of you're always going to have your grief you just have to live with it and control it every once in a while it may get the best of you you might have bad days you might have worse days and you know but you have to get over it i mean i don't have i can't 100 percent relate to having a kid who is special needs to a certain extent or, and then not having, you know, like uh, somebody that the, the, the father or mother died and left me alone. But I mean, everybody can understand grief to a certain extent. Now everybody's grief is different and it affects people differently. So, it, but I would say that, that I really kind of grasped that from it. And I felt that the movie worked really well. And the second time watch, I appreciated it even more. Like I liked it. I, I was like, Oh, that's a good movie in 2014. But as you get older, you kind of start to notice other things and, and you kind of uh, just, a little bit more connected to things and i don't know it's actually when i was young i could watch anything i would put in stuff and i would uh, register it was disgusting or disturbing but it never bothered me i maybe scared me as a kid but then as you get older you get 
more life experiences and you can put your own life experiences in there and they actually start it starts to bother you a little bit more makes you think um, but i like that kind of stuff so the babadook i was really happy with the rewatch here um jennifer kennett the director to look for um, forward to like um when i when i did my top 50 favorite horror directors i i limited it um to directors that had more than two movies i loved i really had to because there's a lot of two-hit wonders there. I only had really two-hit wonders. I only had two two-hit wonders in my top 50 favorite directors. Otherwise, if she had one more kind of uh, horror classic in, under her belt, I would even count on the Nightingale. I would have thrown her on there. I just, I had to limit it. So I didn't even include a lot of the new directors that I think are great, like Ari Aster's or anything like that, Robert Eggers or Jordan Peele, just because they're too fresh for me. Um, I just, I'm more of kind of an old school classics kind of guy so if you guys are, are kind of wondering what i'm talking about top 50 directors we did something on 22 shots and moods and horror we all picked our top 50 favorite horror directors and obviously we missed some not on, and stuff like that but um yeah I, we all did think about putting her on the list it's just like i said i, I kind of set these own rules for myself where they had to have more than two one movies i loved so yeah the babadook great stuff um do i prefer this or the nightingale this one's definitely more horror this one I think is more um, approachable for people. I think the Nightingale is really kind of super depressing, but I think they're both great. So I do like the Nightingale. I think it's a little bit more up my alley, but I don't know. This one's the better horror film. Okay, the next one here is Big Bad Wolves, an Israeli film. And I hadn't watched this in a long time. I think it's, is it 2013 or 2014? So there we go. Um, yeah. So, of course, this is plastered all over the cover as Quentin Tarantino's best movie of the year. Um, yeah, this is a really enjoyable movie. I remember loving it when I first saw it. And it's one of these movies that brings up a question where you're like, what would I do in that situation? I, I don't know what I'd do. I really do not. So what we have here is a girl goes missing and it's basically uh, assumed it's a pedophile killer that's been going around and kidnapping these poor young girls and feeding them full of candy and chocolates that put them to sleep and then torturing them and raping them and cutting off their heads. So um, basically what happens here is they're pretty sure they got the right guy, um, the, this group of cops, and a few of the cops out of the four that capture them are just thugs like, two of them are really dumb one of the the dumb guys is from that um geez what was that movie that uh i'm just getting old the exploitation put out um this year uh about the uh israeli house party gone wrong that was really good that was a that was a solid movie he's actually a bigger star in that one but he plays a bit role in this one so these four cops um end up beating the crap out of this guy three of them uh, that they I uh, think is the killer he's the school teacher which complicates things even more he's a very small meat guy um and somebody records the event and puts it online. So this puts the chief in a really bad spot where he ends up, you know, um, letting one of the guys go. And since that uh, they had to let this guy go because of all the problems they caused, the, the girl is murdered too as well. That, that event, those events don't actually happen in that order. I think that the girl's found dead before the video goes viral and stuff like that. So what happens is the one guy gets fired, but the chief kind of says, well, you're no longer a police officer for, for the moment being, so you're a private citizen. They can do whatever they want. Basically says, find out if this guy did it or not because they had to let him go. So he kind of tracks him down and he ends up kidnapping him. But meanwhile... He's planning on kidnapping. There is another guy who has a vested interest in this as well. Um, the actual guy who lost his daughter. And he is going all out. He has bought a house in the secluded area to bring this guy and torture him and figure out where his daughter's head is so she can be buried with her freaking head. So anyways, there's an uneasy um, kind of alliance with this father and this uh, kind of disgraced police detective to get this guy to confess that he uh, killed these girls and where their heads are. 
So that's where it happens. Things, of course, get super complicated um, when people show up that shouldn't be there, kind of. And um, it's really darkly comedic at the same time, and more allegiances are made. Um, the father is so great in this movie. He's absolutely hilarious. I love him. And um, he's got some really great dialogue. There's a point where um, they read to the killer, um, the, the supposed pedophile, they read to him. Uh, basically this, this fairy tale like story, um, told in kind of a fairy tale like story about, you know, the, how the murders are done and the father is saying everything and the police detective, uh, is kind of backing him up on things. And he's like, do you want to finish the story? Do you have this? But he's like, no, you're doing a great job. And that whole part, that dialogue is just priceless and great and, and just really well done. But, um, everything is set up wonderfully where, um, the, there's a part where there's a cake kind of poisoned and somebody eats it that's not supposed to, cause they don't know any better. But, uh, there's also a really funny stuff here with, um, the village, the house they pick is surrounded by, um, they say Arab people, you know, like Arab villagers and everything like that. And like, they always say it in like such a, um, uh, condescending way. Like, Oh, but every time they meet this guy who's on horseback, he's like the nicest, most helpful guy ever. And, uh, and it's just uh, there's some really good moments with him um anyways this is a great film and it ends really well and it's very well acted and you're put sitting in that situation like yeah as a cop you can't be torturing people that you don't have 100 percent evidence but like you're like you know you know but do you know like but if you really thought this guy murdered your daughter what would you do like it's such a complicated thing right like but you never really truly know uh, during the situation. So it, it's pretty crazy. Um, and, uh, I also love the police chief. I think he's got a great look. Like, I think he's got a great performance and there's a really funny scene with him and his son, uh, take your kid to work day, <laughs> which is so funny. Anyways, the guy, the dialogue is really witty, really great, really back and forth. It's a really good movie. It's nerve wracking at times for sure. Um, yeah, it's just a good stuff. It's a big bad wolves. Okay. This next one here is from 2012 or is it 2011, 2012? And this is resolution. Um, this is by what Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And they also went on to make spring which i think is great and um the endless which i haven't seen which is a direct sequel to resolution um so resolution uh this is a it's a unique story it's a unique movie a really great kind of a debut feature film for sure so what happens is um we have this uh, character who has a best friend who's been addicted to drugs. I think meth um, is the drug of choice, and he's kind of ran off the cuff. He's living in isolation in this kind of this uh, squatter's house is where he's like squatting in this weird burnt down kind of rundown house. Um, he ends up showing up, and his. Um, he really wants to get his friend clean, kind of for his own selfish kind of motivations, but he also misses and loves his friend. Um, so he basically ends up handcuffing his friend and he says, you're going to stay here for seven days and get clean. After that, you can do whatever you want. So a lot of this dialogue starts to unfold between them. And really, my favorite part of the film is the relationship between the friends. The, the drug addict guy, his performance is excellent. Um, I think that the stuff that he says and the stuff that he breaks down about drug use, there's a lot of drug use uh, talk in this in this one. We have uh, with the uh, kinky films and this one, and it just feels like drug use is a very prevalent thing in a lot of films. So anyways, the, the dialogue that he has and how he says about drug use and his life is just kind of... Um, is is perfect and i think it's meaningful and i think it's different and i think it, it approaches it in a different um kind of way so what happens is the friend starts to notice some strange things around he finds a, a box of photos that just seem off and and pretty soon um he's getting these weird video um kind of almost like sent to him and, and they showing up on tape and they're showing up on the computer and 
I don't even know to, how to explain exactly what's going on here. I know people that have seen Endless would know it a little bit more. It's a little bit easier, approachable, or understandable. But uh, it seems to be some sort of weird alternate realities and loops, and there's constant film over a film over a film where all these have different uh, playouting factors and, and different kind of, you know, I guess uh, time travel kind of esque things. But there's a lot of strange characters that kind of enter the picture. Um, other drug addicts who um, the, the drug addict character um, actually owe drugs to. Um, a group of Native Americans that own the land that they're squatting on uh, that have a criminal element to them and then we have Bill Obers Jr., one of the best indie actors of all time uh, kind of as this French guy, a very strange recluse and he tells the story of a couple other guys he was out there with that kind of went crazy and then we have a group of kind of religious fanatics that are out there cold. so it adds all these ideas into the mix of you don't have no idea who's responsible or what the hell is going on here and just this kind of crazy environment and technological weirdness and alternate realities and and whatever the hell is going on something that's bigger than you that doesn't care about you um and it's just a mind fuck to be honest uh, trying to explain what the hell's going on or trying to understand what the hell's going on with only seeing this movie a couple times is pretty difficult to be honest but um my most enjoyable aspect was the acting, the relationship between the two main characters. And I think that the drug addict character steals the show. He has this breakdown where he says, you know, I was only ever happy when I was using drugs. That's the only time I was ever happy. And even if I had great parents like you, I would just end up like a drug addict fuck up with great parents. And it's just like, this is just who he is. This is how he wants to do it. Um, but um, yeah, this it's, it's a very good movie. And it's a great debut, and the dialogue's good, and the acting's good, and um, it's just a, it's just such a crazy movie. It's really hard to explain what the hell's going on or try to you know understand it. You know, so it's kind of like in line with something like John dies at the end, where you're just like, oh boy, man, this stuff is wild. It, it's just like you sound like I'm like sound like I'm a seven year old man. Like that's some wild stuff there. You know, that's crazy. It, it and it is. It's really strange. It's just really bizarre kind of ideas that are huge and and um, kind of just blow your mind. But uh, resolution. Okay, so the next one here is Under the Skin from what year? It was 2014. And uh, this is Jonathan Glazer. Um, Scarlett Johansson, of course, is in here from uh, Black. She's Black Widow, right? But she's in a slew of movies. Um, she's absolutely gorgeous. Everybody knows her. She's an amazing actress. Um, and this is one that, like, this is one of these movies where, like, somebody, like, a lot of actors or big actors or actresses take a role. And it brings, it, it like, catches the attention of, of folks that like genre movies like me where I'm like, and that automatically like demands respect. Like Tony Collette, like demands respect for doing Hereditary or some of those roles she did, and just for me, for me at least, and it, not like it matters what the hell any of these celebrities or movie stars think, but as somebody that likes the weird cinema, like seeing somebody like Nicole Kidman grab these kind of strange roles, I'm like, oh, she's awesome. Like it just makes kind of a fan for life. So I've always like had Scarlett Johansson in a positive light. Not that I had her in a negative light before. It's just I didn't really care either way. There's a lot of actors and actresses like that where I just don't care either way until they win me over with something. And this is the one that won me over for Scarlett Johansson. So um, this is based on a novel that is completely different. Um, I guess the novel is more straightforward in certain aspects, what these aliens are doing on here. This is a film about an alien who comes to Earth and learns some humanity and uh, learns that humanity can also be cruel. Um, so anyways, uh, it's got some really beautiful imagery. Um, the music's great. Everything about it is great. Like the sound, uh, the sounds, the cinematography, um, the visuals just fantastic so 
what we have here is Scarlett Johansson and another character seem to be coming down um, and they're kind of harvesting uh, males. Scarlett Johansson's on her own. And the way they did this is really interesting because she was basically, no one knew that they were in a movie and they got them to sign away the, the after they were already filmed. So just imagine Scarlett Johansson driving around this big old van picking up guys and talking to them and they didn't know that they were being filmed. They didn't know that was Scarlett Johansson. They didn't know. So it's very creepy in the way and it also shows me... Um, Thank, uh, thanks for, thankfully for men, um, there's not as many, uh, sexual serial killers as there are uh, for women, at least. I mean, that's not good that there's male sexual killers that prey on women and other men, but the idea that if there were a lot more women sexual serial killers that preyed on men the same way that male serial killers prey on women, although it does happen, but just not nearly as as as, as much, um, men are such easy pickings. Like Scarlett Johansson just driving around picking up guys in a van. They just get in. They don't really think. They're like, oh, yeah, I'll take a ride. And they're just like, hey. And it's just like they just have not learned that uh, somebody could kill you so very easily. Um, but it's just, it's just like seeing all these guys just get in the, tr get in the van. Why the hell not? Um, and she obviously. She leads him to an isolated place with the promise of sex, and she puts them into this black void, and they never are seen again. And they're kind of, kind of, I guess, assimilated or used for energy of sorts, and kind of just degraded down to nothingness. But you actually get to see this process, and it's wonderful. Um, there's a really brutal scene, uh, a beach scene. If anybody's seen the movie, I don't want to spoil it too much. But the lack of humanity, not understanding anything, is just is really, uh, really hard to watch. Um, and then there's this, uh, wonderful scene that I, and everybody will bring it up where there's this guy who has a deformity on his face that is picked up and she treats him exactly the same as she treats everyone else. And while you're watching it, you got to register that this guy has never had somebody treat him normal in his life or never had to show any sexual interest in him as far as the film is concerned. And her doing that, it just like shows this weird compassion she didn't even know she had and it shows through and because her lack of understanding humanity has let her put her guard down enough or not put her guard down but just treat him as anyone else just another victim that she's going to go and i guess his reaction to that has opened up some sort of understanding or compassion within her that changes her and that is such a touching moment that is such a brilliant moment and that is such a great moment to give an actor who has this disfigured look a chance to do a good performance and not just, Hey, you look weird. Don't you want to do something dumb, like stand in a circus or something? Cause a lot of times, you know, back in the day, like the Sentinel, they'd be like, well, you have a physical deformity. Come and walk in that from you're you're a beast from hell, be deformed. And you're just like, Oh man, I don't obviously wouldn't do that kind of stuff now. Um, and I do feel like the movie Freaks or something by Todd Browning used those people to, um, I don't want to say use those people, that sounds bad, right? Use those people with those physical deformities as um, real performances, right? And even something as cheesy that people would say, um, Ghoulies 2, uh, Phil Fondacaro actually got a real performance in Ghoulies 2 and Troll. They gave him these moments. And this moment for this guy to give, like, to flex his acting muscle, although his performance directly is because of that physical deformity it it, it 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 brings up that physical deformity but it also gives him something to act and i thought that was a really great moment in the film and uh just a a great moment that just is as it's almost unmatched in it, in it you know what i mean it's just such a special moment um and as the film goes on, like uh she kind of learns the darker side of humanity and she tries to be human but she can't um and it's just a great film, a great performance by Scarlett Johansson. It's a beautifully 
great looking film um has some emotional stuff and it's just funny that you can look at something like this a movie about an alien learning about humanity is more told tells you more about humanity than movies about humans right um and, and and a lot of these movies about you know uh robots and stuff learning humanity as well like Chappie or even ex machina i think this does it better i think it it, it brings up the question a little bit better than ex machina for sure and i know i'm hating i hate not ex machina i just it's overrated message not as good as advertised eh. uh stick with under the skin even though it's not exactly the same kind of message i just think it's a better movie so yeah under skin great stuff okay this next one here is the patreon pick and this is byzantium and this is directed by oh geez um neil jordan Neil Jordan did a bunch of movies, including Interview with a Vampire, The Crying Game, A Company of Wolves. So Byzantium is a 2012 movie uh, that I, I think it's 2012. I always get these mixed up. The newer movies, I don't register as well what year they are as the older ones. 2012 it is. Um, and I had not seen this. Um, it is kind of a, it's about two hour long film. Um, and it does have that kind of epic kind of feel like Interview with a Vampire where it branches over a lot, hundreds of years because these are two age old vampires. Um, so Byzantium, I really do wish I would have watched this one back then. So the story structure is pretty fantastic in this. We have a, a, a mother and daughter vampire that are traveling. They kind of have to leave certain areas here and there. Um, in the beginning, we have this one vampire tracking uh, the mother, and she has to defend herself, and it's a really gory scene. And after that, they have to move to a different area. They end up finding this kind of rundown hotel or motel or whatever, it, it would be a hotel, um, where they kind of take over and kind of, the mother kind of sweet talks the, the former owner, you know, the, the owner and kind of takes over and makes it this brothel. Um, there's also two kind of vampires that are looking for her, tracking her down and tracking the mother and father down where there's all these victims. Usually they pick older people or people that are just kind of not great people, people that prey on other people or people ready to expire. So they're tracking the bites and everything that are leading them eventually to this place um there's some really great moments where they're shot actually on this kind of like this kind of circus or like almost like a coney island style thing which i absolutely adore i love movies that have carnivals in them um but this is also a period piece so as it goes on um uh the young va younger vampire the daughter is kind of learning um she's kind of falling in love with um geez i can't think of the actor's name but he's um in get out he's a great actor he's also in antiviral uh geez uh caleb, caleb landry jones he's, he's kind of falling for him and uh, he has this kind of illness that uh, where his blood doesn't coagulate because he's on blood thinners for a cancer of some sort. And she starts to kind of tell her story to him a little bit. as And she's portraying it as fiction for the class and everything. But um, we start to see their story and their background through that. We cut back and forth where we have all these characters. And we actually see where the vampires are created. And it's, it's a great piece of mythology. It's a beautiful location. And I love the the kind of the backstory here of her life and everything. It reminds me a little bit of the 2016 movie Brimstone. How we kind of flash back and, and learn a little bit about these characters and everything like that. But anyways, it's just this big sprawling epic. And I got to say that the cinema photography is great but it's also kind of the the framing and the um the um what is the word i'm looking for the blocking for the actors and everything so like um you'll notice like they'll have a shot here and where, where all the the framing is there's like here is like a, a kind of a down where people are walking the tunnel and above is like a bridge so you'll literally see two characters you'll see a character walking in and walking out and it's just like the framing here and 
the cinematography is fantastic how you would get the composition to the depth of field and and you see all the characters moving and everything and the, the choreographing that it would have to take is amazing but uh yeah there's some really wonderful moments here um and i just really thought this was a great film the acting was tremendous it was emotional um the cinematography was beautiful and, and just i really dug this and i like the backstory the the mythology within is, is wonderful and the villain the captain i've he's like oh he's just such a bastard um just reminded me of those kind of characters but anyways i really like this i really thought this was great stuff really recommended and a big surprise i mean it, it shouldn't be neil jordan's a great director mona lisa like i said mona lisa is a great film by, with bob hoskins and and i haven't seen the crying game in, in 20 years and 15 more 15, 20 years, somewhere around there. I remember liking that movie. And I've never seen Company of Wolves, which is bad. I know he did Greta a couple years back, which I thought was okay. But uh, this one I was really impressed with. Really great stuff. A big vampire epic. And I... I the more vampire movies I watch, the more they interest me in the aspect of the different kinds of mythology and the way they're handled and everything. And every vampire movie's got its own mythology, and uh, I like that. I dig that, and uh, it's, and I, I love period pieces, obviously, you know, big into them. Okay, we're going to hop into those 1970 movies. Though sometimes beaten back, he came again and again against the enemy, till at the end he came alone from the bloody field, for he alone could triumph. This was a Dracula deed. In summary, President Nixon ordered American troops into Cambodia. He called it an incursion, not an invasion. It lasted for two months. The purpose was to destroy enemy bases and supply lines. At times, that mission was extremely dangerous. Marcus Welby, MD, and the Dick Cavett Show will not be seen tonight so that we may bring you live cover coverage of the 42nd Annual Awards of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The Jimi Hendrix experience is over. The acid rock musician died today in a London hospital, apparently from an overdose of drugs. Headquarters in Washington, I'm Howard K. Smith. I'm Harry Reasoner in New York. These are tonight's headlines. Rail service across the nation is crippled by the continuing strike of the Railway Clerks Union. President Nixon meets with newsmen in his first nationally televised news conference since late July. Defense counsel says that Lieutenant Calley had orders from higher up to kill every living thing in July. And Secretary of State Rogers pledges that American troops will not be sent back into Cambodia. Howard? Reports tonight on the rail strike from Gregory. And after she let the devil fornicate with her making the men impotent. Okay, the first 1970 movie is a mouthful. Locus, um, the manuscript of Professor Wittenbaum? which is actually going to be part of that folk horror uh, box set that Severin's putting out. This is 1970. This is a movie that um, one, one of my co-hosts uh, that's going to be on that show was like, it's okay. So I was like, eh. and then I was just like, you know what? It sounds like it's up my alley. I'm going to give it a try. And I freaking love this thing. This is totally on my alley. I believe it's a Polish film or Eastern European film. Uh, it starts to get foggy for me in that. Uh, when we start to get to the Eastern Europe or Polish Polish movies. So, um, yeah, I was really impressed with this one. This has really thick uh, folklore uh, style. So we have this professor who's kind of traveling cross-country, and he likes to study primitive folklore. So that's kind of his thing that he's into. He's a religious man, a, a, a pastor. So I can't necessarily know exactly what he is, some sort of religious figure. So on a train on the way uh, to where his destination is, he meets these uh, this, this group of women and they tell him a little bit about themselves and some other things. And he kind of ends up landing at this place with this count. And um, 
this doctor who's kind of taking care of the count, uh, the countess, his the count's mother, and all this kind of stuff. And you really have this. They're very mysterious characters, very superstitious. Everyone around is very superstitious. The doctor's kind of playing into the superstitions and whatnot. And it seems like almost like a mass hysteria here. So he learns the backstory of the mother. She was actually attacked by a bear while she was pregnant, and after that, she was never right. Even after she gave birth to the count, she wanted him dead. So she's kind of kept isolated. The count's never married. He's in fact with capturing creatures he cannot stand the sight of blood he doesn't like blood he doesn't like bears so we start to get this idea that he is some sort of possible werebear uh, but uh, the locations are wonderfully beautiful there's this really great scene in the swamp with this witch where a branch falls into the swamp which I thought was great um, there's a really cool moment where um, he captures this hawk with his bare hand uh, which is crazy and then there's a great scene involving all the animals he's captured on his wedding day which I thought was wonderful also involving the witch which <laughs> but uh, the interactions between the doctor and the religious guy are, are wonderful especially their final interaction I thought was just uh, pretty much kind of uh, put the whole movie in perspective to a certain extent and that final shot of uh, the, the priest leaving on the train giving something in the last rites I was like this is perfect this is absolutely perfect and it brings up these kind of superstitious stuff here and where you lie on it and, and this mixture of religion and science and superstition and all together. Um, and the house they shoot at is a wonderful, uh, beautiful giant house. There's lots of great art, which uh, is obviously kind of like telling stories on the walls with the devils and everything. But there's this really kind of great cinematography at the same time. Well, you'll be sitting there, these characters talking, you'll see something kind of fall in the background. That's wonderful. Um, and also it really sets the date. It just sets the period piece. You really feel like you're there. Um, there's also a really cool celebration scene where you see this village celebrate this stuff and the stuff he's interested in obviously this kind of big festival festivities going on. But uh, one of the best shots that really I took notice for is the subtle movement of camera. You know uh, before the steady cam, like these subtle movements of camera and this and holding the camera still is really kind of special and I feel like it has a certain life to it and this one does too where um, there's a, a at the at the end of the film uh, after a wedding has taken place there's kind of some a scare and the door's locked but we're like start we start off in the in like kind of the dining area at a distance and from a distance people are eating and we're kind of crouched behind the table as the camera and the camera just moves out a little bit and watches the people and we watch the people walk back and forth until we watch all of them leave the room and go somewhere in kind of a frantic state and I, I was just like just that little piece of camera work I was like well that's so fantastic and it's just so subtle but also wonderful and perfect and feels alive and you feel like you're there um, and, you know, it'd be the voyeur kind of thing, but still it just feels a little bit different than that. And it's just the right amount of movement. Perfect. Wow. So anyways, I thought this was great. I thought this was really interesting and different and uh, just kind of love this folklore stuff. And I love these period pieces and it felt really cold and, and just different. And I don't know, it's something about this, this kind of or like this air, this, uh, this like where these movies are from in that kind of Eastern Europe or Polish kind of countryside where it's, it's a little bit different from the Spanish and Italian folklore stuff I saw and even Europe, of I mean, England, of course. So it's it's just different and a little bit um, uh, kind of refreshing. And I, I like the idea. You don't see it typically see too many werebear movies. Or, or, and I'm not, don't get this wrong. 
there's not some giant werebear running around slashing people like, you know, grizzly or something. Okay. It's not that this is completely different. It's, you know, it's kind of a quiet movie that just has a lot of dialogue and brings up a lot of crazy questions, but has some really good imagery at the same time. This would be a perfect double features with, with the wolf in the woods, which I already brought up from 1970. This is kind of the same thing where, you know, if you tell somebody something long enough, maybe they start thinking they are that, or the superstition around can make you think you are that, or maybe they actually are that, or maybe just that manifestation of it. I, I, I don't know. You see how these guys, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea of becoming something that people tell you you are for long enough, or uh, the idea of somehow physically being able to manifest into it because you believe it enough, or maybe it's a hereditary thing, just like Curse of the Werewolf with Oliver Reed from Hammer, which is an excellent movie at the same time, which kind of has the same idea, or Humongous would do that idea where someone was attacked by a beast and gave birth to a beast similar to Beast Within. So the Beast Within and um, Curse of the Werewolf and Humongous, these are all movies that kind of take that as well, where maybe this person was attacked by a monster and gave birth to said another monster. So anyways, um, Locusts, are, which also means bear, or it means something a little bit different from just bear. Maybe the man, like kind of like a, a bear man thing. I think that's kind of what it translates to a certain extent. But yeah, anyways, great film. Really enjoyed it. Okay, the next one here is another one that appears in that Severn box set, which I did pre-order, guys. I didn't get the deluxe edition, but I got the, the edition with the 20 movies. And I would recommend a lot of people picking that up. But uh, yeah, I, I, Witch Hammer. Which 1970 uh, Czechoslovakian movie. So you got another Eastern European kind of style thing. Even though I, I don't know if Poland counts as Eastern European, does it? I don't know. Geography? I know where it is, but I don't. Does it count as Eastern European? I'm talking about the last movie. But so, anyways, Witch Hammer. It fits in with the long line of which kind of uh, torture movies in like Witchfinder General, um, Bloody Judge from this year, Mark of the Devil from this year, and even like Twins of Evil. I believe had Peter Cushing as kind of a Witchfinder. Even Blood on Satan's Claw wasn't that character in there. Kind of like a Witch kind of Finder General guy. So uh, we have here we have this character, uh, the most despicable of all of them, probably. One of them for sure. So in the very opening, we have this guy who's just like reciting these awful things. And he's almost like the narrator or basically not necessarily narrator, but he's just saying these really nasty uh, anti-women biblical things like the and, and one of the little featurettes on here is actually named the one. But he says the way to hell is through the womb of a woman. And you're just like, that's all you need to say about how these kind of people looked at women and and. Okay, let me say this now. This movie drove me mad. And that's a it's in a positive way. It absolutely drove me crazy because I cannot stand to watch religious fanaticism end up engulfing an entire culture, this mass hysteria, mob mentality, stupidity of people burn people at the cross for some bullshit. I can't stand it. And it's one of these things that um I would never let society forget um, when people go crazy about certain things. I, I just want a mob mentality on a, a group of people for something. It's just disgusting. So uh, what happens is this, this is basically taken from real transcript, transcripts at a certain time. And this uh, this old woman tries to steal a, a wafer uh, during a, you know, a communal wafer at uh, a, a thing and take it to her village to give to a cow to cure her friend's cow for it's not giving milk. This becomes some look at, uh, it's kind of a look at, it's blasphemy, apparently, and one of the priests, um, some of the more logical priests just want to say, hey, it was a superstitious old woman, just kind of lightly punish her and let's move on about it. But uh, one of the priests suggests that they bring in this old kind of witch finder kind of guy to kind of run through the town and figure everything out. Um, unfortunately, the um, you know the royalty in the area or the, uh, the kind of people in charge 
kind of who are dumb, complete morons, and they're obviously make that statement as well, which the devils brings up a lot of this stuff too, the hypocrisy and it's all about the money. The crucible does the same thing, all this kind of idea, you know, that they want to steal the landmark of the devil, which they're all kind of similar ideas and everything like that. This one's just gorgeous black and white on top of that. So uh, they bring in this guy and it's wonderful where they show him at originally. He's just in shambles running this in and it, you're just like, oh, this guy doesn't have money. He's in rags and he seems somewhat humble, but right when he gets the chance to show up as this kind of magnificent Witchfinder general, he starts to kind of take over. He's drinking the wine. He butts heads with this guy the, right away um, who has like a young housekeeper and everything. You know where this is going, right? And uh, pretty soon he's convicted three women to burn at the at the at burn alive, and, and and it's more out of hand. And it's it's definitely a tale about corruption, about you know complete bullcrap of, of of you know accusing people, and also be careful who you bring in and give this power to, because you know what you may be next, you may go next, and that's exactly what starts to happen. And it's just it, it's so nerve wracking to watch this spineless piece of shit idiot completely ignorant uneducated person in charge which happens all the time right uh, basically making these dumb accusations and complete in in torture people till they confess complete bullshit but it, it's such also a wonderfully made movie where the guy who initially um, brought this on has regret um, and starts to fold like a truly pious man realizes he was wrong and has to live with it and just people turning their back on their friends being Judas's and everything and having that that guilt within them and just um also shows you how much how little people care if they're not the ones burning and i always say that people just don't care about the suffering of others a lot of time unless it's directly affecting them people care where their money is that's and this is exactly here the 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 royalty realizes well i'm getting a lot of the money back with these people being put to death because they had a lot of the money and they ripped me off in the first place so let them burn i'm gonna benefit from it and the people up top do not give a shit about you <laughs> and you just see all these and it's just all, all you need to know about society and and people up top is watch a witch witch movie and you'll realize that you mean nothing to them your loyalty does not belong to anyone it shouldn't except yourself and your friends and family but then again they might each tell you out too so i don't know it's just a, a beautifully true movie and aggravating and sad and uh, the, the priest, uh, he, he likes to bring up a point. He says, can anyone truly, you know, fight against the torture and everything like that? Can anyone truly tell the truth? Um, I would like to think I would. I think other people would too. But anyway, it's just a great movie, a great 1970 uh, film, more more folk uh, drama, but it has horror elements and the elements of torture and stuff with the crushed thumbs and the people burning alive and, and just some really kind of dark moments but are comedic. Um, so-and-so, I was pleasantly surprised at the way she looked when she burned alive. That was very uh, surprising and, and whatnot, just that. That kind of stuff anyways but the way he's just a master manipulator where he uses that court the sheriff guy the guy the arrest guy he says well you know some of those people mentioned you um uh in there and i know it's fake but you know i mean and he's basically please i'll just do whatever you want just such a master manipulator and it's so hard for people to register when they're being manipulated so anyways uh there's a great little featurette on here by cat ellinger it's about 22 minutes long where she mentions a lot of other czechoslovakian movies and movies similar to this and of course the Witchfinder movies and all that kind of stuff very good stuff cat ellinger is one of the best in the business when it comes to that kind of stuff and i look forward to the folklore uh folklore box set from severin coming out 20 movies i've not seen everything on there a couple i have seen but man it'd be great to see some new ones on there of course uh, some ones i've heard of that i ever got a chance to watch so yeah which hammer 
Okay, the next one here is an Italian movie from 1970, and it's more of a thriller drama, but it is Kill the Fatted Calf and Roast It, which is kind of a meaning of a celebration, a special celebration, you know, uh, like popping a, a vintage bottle of wine or something, Kill the Fatted Calf and Roast It. So what we have here is in the very opening of the movie, we have a wonderful Ennio Morricone score, a very memorable one. I think that it's probably the thing that pops up when you search this movie. Number one thing is the score, and for good reason, it's great. Um, the director really didn't go on to do very many uh, horror films or thrillers after this. I don't think he did anymore. Um, and it seems he kind of stuck with more sexual content is my understanding. I read a little bit briefly about him. But uh, this one does have some of the sexual content. So we have this young man is returning home for the death of his, um, is it his father, I believe. And uh, his, his brother's there and his cousin are there. His brother is played by Gene Searle from Quiet Place to Kill. Also this year from Umberto Lenzi. He's also in um, Fox with the Velvet Tail and some other films. So he's kind of a familiar face, French actor, very handsome kind of guy. And this young son um, appears to have some sort of possibly, well, the family's basically saying he has some, you know, mental issues, some psychological issues. And as later the film goes on, we kind of learn, like, they put, like, the, one of their family members, I believe it's the grandmother, in the kind of mental institution and he believes they did it to get rid of her but she seems a little off and there's this beautiful moment where he goes and studies the family lineage and this librarian comes up to him and says something along the lines like oh that family's crazy they had a history of incest and he just kind of gets mad about it because he's literally talking about his family lineage and that kind of plays into his mental state and everything like that and there's some gaslighting kind of going on too here but he has this infatuation with his cousin and he doesn't like his brother and he thinks his brother actually killed the father and everything like that so then he starts to suspect that they're out to get him um, there's this really kind of great uh, opening here where he rides in the town in like kind of the back of like this this calf like I'm not calf this kind of like with cows and everything and he's like obviously enjoys them and likes them and then he kind of watches where they go and go right to the slaughterhouse and it's definitely kind of playing into that and he possibly is the calf that they're going to roast and celebrate because he um, is the only one standing in between them and what would be a lot of money so uh, it's a good movie it's well made um, it's really well acted the music score is great, but it's a lot of family drama going on. But those moments I mentioned, I thought really stood out. And the ending, you know, it's it's a really good like. The ending is a, a little bit of thing that I didn't expect. It has kind of like not I wouldn't say a stinger, but it ends a little bit kind of like Quiet Place to Kill. We were like, oh, okay. Um, there's a couple familiar faces in here. I completely forgot to mention when we covered a Cat O' Nine Tales. There's a police officer in that movie that is actually a police officer in this movie. He's a very familiar face. You've seen him in a bunch of stuff, so I should have brought that up. But uh, yeah, I can't think of this actor's name but he he's like he reminds me of luigi pistelli but he's not he's in tons of movies he's a character actor from italy but anyways i thought this was a really good movie with a wonderful score and some good family drama kind of uh mental uh psychology stuff going on so anyways that is kill uh the fatted calf and roast it also a good name so yeah okay the next one from 1970 is another italian flick and this is uh your sweet body to kill and this is by the director Alfredo Bresna. Bresna, he also did The Naked Girl Dead in the Park, which I'm not a particularly a big fan of. I thought that movie was a little dull and inept and just kind of uh, the sound the sound on the Blu-ray wasn't great either, so it kind of held it back a little bit. Shouldn't hold it against it. But Your Sweet Body to Kill, I enjoyed immensely. So uh, it's always good to give a director a second chance. Um, <coughs> sorry. This is, again, in the more of the thriller kind of area, Jolly for sure. And uh, what we have here is this guy who despises his wife. He's kind of a strange guy. His wife has most of the money. She's uh, definitely kind of more the, um, uh, I would say, like, uh, you know, a, not aggressive, but more the um, one who takes control. She has the money. She runs the business. And this the husband's a little bit kind of, 
out of his element. He's a little bit off. He's a little bit meek, and he just doesn't really, you know, uh, take charge of anything. His his biggest infatuation is fish. He loves his fish, but he can't stand his wife. Um, he constantly fa- fantasizes about killing her. There's some really funny moments that remind me of obviously the creep show stuff um, with uh, Hal Halbrick trying to kill Adrian Barbeau all the time, just imagining it. And uh, there's a couple scenes like that where he's just constantly fascinated, fantasizing about killing her. Um, uh, soon enough, he kind of registers that, um, his wife is having an affair with this, uh, with a doctor friend of theirs. The doctor friend is actually the bad guy from Django. If anybody's seen that, the main kind of head, the bad guy, the leader of the like Ku Klux Klan group in Django. So the doctor is actually that guy and the wife is sleeping with him and he catches on and he decides to kind of take advantage of this. He's going to blackmail this guy, um, because he knows a secret about him. He was a German that was involved with a lot of Nazi stuff in world war two. And he's going to blackmail him to kill his wife so he's gonna make him kill his his uh, lover so uh so he can get away with it so they have this elaborate plan where he kills her and puts her in a suitcase and he um is gonna visit um where is it uh tangiers where they have a, a factory at where they have these acid baths and throw the suitcase in the acid baths to get rid of the evidence so he can be off scot-free um uh at the same time uh he is obviously gonna hit some snags because the tra- the luggage gets all mixed up and it went to one of three people on the plane one of three women that were on the plane so it's up to him to try to figure out which woman has that suitcase and stop her before they open it. So it's like almost this like nerve-wracking process where he's trying to figure out where all of them are in the area. Where he's trying to find them all, and they all are different kind of characters. Or one is a middle-aged woman that he kind of sweet talks, and one is a dancer, and and one is this young model that he had some conversations with that loves fish as well. So it gets really complicated, but it's very fun um, and entertaining. It's not super complicated; it's straightforward, but it's it's comp- complicated for him, right? Um, but there's these great moments where people are following him, and he's getting super paranoid and there's a great little twist at the very end and this one is very fun it's very dark comedy it works really well i enjoyed it quite a bit um and it's just a really good time uh the lead performance is really good too he's got a great look about him and a great performance uh anyways this is a very enjoyable dark comedy jolly that uh thriller deal which i i thought was really fun i would really recommend it your sweet body to kill um didn't hear too much about it in the reviews um just on letterbox and stuff aren't very high on it but i, I was really impressed with it good stuff uh recommended i think it's a lot of fun okay we're getting into the last 1970 movie we're going to end on a doozy and this is whore of the blood monsters from the al adamson collection that's this this freaking thing is huge so um yeah whore of the blood monsters starring the legendary john carradine which made me laugh hysterically because the first shot like it looks like they spray painted his hair with that blue gray shit to make him look older i'm like guys guys you don't need to make John Carradine look any older than he does in 1970, all right? The guy, I love John Carradine, right? But John Carradine's looked 100 ever since I saw him. I mean, man that shot Liberty Valance, John Carradine looks 100 to me still. Uh, he's always looked 100. I don't know. You don't need to make him look older. So this is kind of a science fiction kind of affair. In the very beginning, we have this weird kind of narration where it's like, these vampires, and I, I guess they're kind of stating that these vampires came from space, but they have this weird American style vampire things, these vampires attacking people in the streets. It's really cheesy and cheap. And you're just like, I was like, I don't know. Uh, and then as it starts, we find this is more of a space exploration, exploration movie where they land on this planet. And of course, they're going to run into all sorts of kind of crazy things. Think Planet of the Vampire, something along those lines, Queen of Blood. So what happens here? I always mix that up. Is it Queen of Blood or Queen of, Queen of Blood? Yeah, it's the one by Curtis Harrington. So what happens is... 
Uh, John Carradine is this scientist, and he's with a bunch of astronauts. They crash land on this planet, and uh, they have to go out and search for something to repair the ship to get the hell out of there. What they run into is uh, a group of vampires. They're like these primitive cave-like vampires that are attacking these other tribal people, and uh, the other tribal people are kind of fighting them, and they actually implant this weird mechanism in one of their heads so they can translate their language, change their brainwave, so they understand us and we understand them. She becomes kind of one of the main characters in the film. And of course, there's going to be a relationship between one of those two, of course. Yeah, you got to have it. So um, basically, they're kind of running through and trying to find the right elements to get off this planet. Meanwhile, while fighting constant long battles with these tribes and uh, all these vampire people, it goes on for a long time. It's fun. Obviously shot in the Philippines, you could tell, just by the crazy kind of stunts and, and everything like that. And the dubbing, you would assume, too. So all this kind of stuff, all these battles and everything. But it's just not only just the vampire cave people they have to deal with. Um, they also run into this part, which made me laugh hysterically. Um, <laughs> they're going through the water. These, uh, these people, not necessarily the astronauts, but a group of the, the tribal people go through the water and you see these like heads pop up like these lobster heads. And I'm like, what is this now? And I should have paid attention to the case more so, but these lobster men attacked them and it was absolutely brilliant. Loved it. Loved the lobster men attacking everybody and whatnot. And then they get crazier. They run into a cave and there's Batman, like Batman, like straight from the twilight people or something, or, I assume bat people, which I have not seen, but I've seen the Twilight People by Eddie Romero. So like these bat creatures attack them, and like there's just like um, all the monsters in here that like the crab people or the bat people, they just hit them on the head with like like mallets, and they're just dead. They're like, Ugh. and then like the vampires get hit with arrows. Like, Ugh. there's lots of killing. There's like the kill count in this movie's got to be like 50, 60. Just everything's getting killed here. And on the cover, it says something about snake people. And it's like. I don't remember seeing any snake people. Maybe I closed my eyes for half a second, but I do not remember seeing any snake people. But John Carradine is a prick in this movie. He's like, get out of there and get me some stuff. And like, they get back to the ship, like, and like, they know that there's like, uh, hostile life forms on the planet, but he's still like, yeah, well go out and get me some more stuff. It's like, Mr. Carradine, you do not realize that there's this monster trying to kill me every step of the way. And you're just sending me out here. Like I'm going out of the store to get a, a gallon of milk or something. You, you go out there, you get your ass out there. But anyways, um, it's just kind of a fun, goofy movie by Al Adamson. I enjoyed myself. Uh, it, it's fun. Like, I can't speak too much about it. It's really goofy and cheap, but the action never stops, and it's enjoyable as hell. So that's Horror of the Blood Monsters. Not necessarily great, but entertaining nonetheless. What? What is this? Zombie Bloodbath 2. Rage the Undead. What? You ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2 Rage of the Undead? Nah, I guess I must have missed that one. You ain't seen nothing. You ain't seen nothing. I seen way more than you. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Casino, Cannibal Holocaust, The Beginning, The Great Escape, Kelly's Heroes, Once Upon a Time in the Fucking West. You haven't seen War and Peace, Pink Flamingos, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, Citizen Game. The Alvin and the Chipmunks Christmas Special. You haven't seen... What else haven't you seen? The Magnificent Seven? The Magnificent Seven Ride Again? The Magnificent Seven Are Back? Is that a movie? And last of all, you ain't seen Zombie Bloodbath 2, Rage of the Undead. And you haven't seen War and Peace. I ain't watching War and Peace. The hell you are. Fuck War and Peace! Alright guys, we're here for You Ain't Seen. This is my pick for you. And this is Dario Argento's Cat O' Nine Tales. This is the second in his loose trilogy, the Animal Trilogy, his second film as well, and second Giallo. Uh, yeah, this is made in 1971. 
also the same year as his third one, uh, Four Flies on Gray Velvet. We're going to cover the new Arrow 4K. Looks excellent. Um, it's crazy what they can do with these old movies. They did put this out on Blu-ray previously, and then I believe, or was it, what was the other release before? I can't think if there was another um, United States release on disc before that. Okay, so this stars James Franciscus from the wonderful um, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. The and, best planet of the year. And he's in the third one for a bit, too. Probably archive footage. And Carl Molden, who's kind of a classic actor. Um, there's other familiar faces in here. The guy from uh, Mosquito the Rapist, which I still need to watch. And and a couple other uh, famous people. I, um, what was... I think the uh, husband from the last movie, he pops up in here he in a bit role. In, in a very bitchy queen role, which mm -hmm. is very funny. Um, yeah, so anyways... This is a classic Dario. He's not actually a huge fan of this movie, which is kind of a shame because I honestly think it's in his top, I don't want to say five, but it's really close. It's really close for me. Um, so the plot is as follows. Carl Molden is this kind of blind former newspaper journalist. And one day he's out walking with what I think is his niece. It's never really, it's a, it's like a loose family member, but they mm -hmm. call each other niece and uncle. Um, he calls her Cookie, or does she call him Cookie? She calls him Cookie. Okay, that's his nickname is Cookie. Affectionate name there. And uh, he overhears this guy on the phone. You really don't know. Um, you, you do know who it is. And he's basically telling somebody uh, something. Uh, and it seems really really uh, suspicious. Like some sort of um, blackmail in, process, in, in progress going on. So he basically, Carl Walden, tells his niece to look at the guy and get everything. And he, <laughs> he becomes directly involved with the case and has a vested in, uh, interest in it. Um, that night, there was a murder that occurs, and it, it's, it's kind of related. James Franciscus is currently a journalist, so uh, Carl Walden reaches out to him, and the two start to investigate the case together. Um, and the main suspects are people that um, I, I don't even know exactly um, what their job is. It's one of these places that does like scientific engineering, which is kind of a weird um, subplot in a lot of these Gialli at the time. I think, mm -hmm. um, what was the one? Uh, Death Laid an Egg, which keeps popping up. I keep referencing this movie, but that goes to show you that the 1968 Death Laid an Egg was kind of ahead of its time, to be honest, and it had a lot of that scientific engineering engineering espionage stuff going on in there so um basically they're trying to figure out who the killer is and the murders and the bodies keep piling up a photographer who took a, a picture of another murder the second murder actually ends up dead the second murder is in, in grand fashion at a train station if anyone's ever seen this movie it's um one of Dario's first big kind of set piece murders. Obviously, he would go on to do some really incredible stuff. This one's still great, um, but you think incredible like kind of murder sequences are Tenenbrae and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, what did you think of the Cat of Nine Tales? Um, I actually really liked that. I liked it better than um, Bird of a Crystal Plumage. I, I think it was a bit more, I guess, coherent and more clear as to what was going on. Um, you know, the... Crystal Plumage had the problem where it's like it, it relayed too much misinformation because of an unreliable narrator. Well, um, I, it, you know, it, it just had those flaws. It was for the sake of twist. You know, it's like, oh, I can't remember what... But it's not a what... flaw. They don't actually ever show it. When they but, show his flashback, it's at a different angle where you can actually see. But when he's trying to remember, which is his memory, it's not exactly how it happened because you never remember exactly Right, but, you, you know, when, when you're trying... When you're watching... At least when I'm watching a mystery... You know, I really want to look at the evidence that's presented and come to a conclusion. But if that evidence is constantly changing because of the narration, it's like, yeah, well, I, I can't, 
I, I'm not expected to solve this. It, the movie just has to tell me. But, but while in this one, I think that it does give you a cast of characters, and there isn't anything that is like overtly a cheat, du- like like dubious in it. I, I know that some people complain about the cheat and Tenenbrae and stuff like that, but um, yeah, it is kind of a straightforward police procedural. Mm-hmm. Of course, James Franciscus goes to like the guy who runs the company. He gets involved with the daughter. There's that whole subplot, mm-hmm. um, and there is a lot of quirky characters that pop up, very similar yeah. to Bird with the Crystal Plumage. We have the um, what's the guy's name? The thief with the giant hair that looks kind of like. Um, he looks like a, a kind of a weird kind of off celebrity or something like that that I oh, can't think. Oh, the one that... Gigi? Okay. Is it Gigi? I think it is Gigi. Yeah. But he's like this kind of like ex-criminal that he like cons into helping him break in and enter and stuff. And of course we have one of the characters is kind of like this really kind of eccentric homosexual character. So in true Dario fashion, we have a scene with a lot of homosexual characters. And um, the commentary uh, with Kim Newman and Alan Jones is absolutely hilarious because uh, it's a great commentary, but they bring up something that may me laugh out loud i think it was kim newman who said it he said um the distinguishing factor of being a homosexual in these movies is the inability to button the top three buttons on your shirt and i just started laughing because it's it's like dario's making all these like characters that are completely inaccurate like you walk in and half the homosexuals are like in drag and then everybody's <laughs> their shirts buttoned down and james franciscus walks in the, the the bar scene and like they're all just like eyeball on him and like mm. it's just a really kind of quirky fun scene that uh, dario would kind of do in a lot of the movies um and a lot of these movies do tend to have homosexual characters in them like a lot of the euro stuff and and not always like completely like back in the day there'd be a lot of despicable or comical and, mm-hmm. and somewhat comical in this but um that is like kind of a nice little um kind of like set piece for sure and one of the characters um, and everything like that. So Carl Malden's great in it. Um, definitely the, the driving force, the emotional force in this is his relationship with um, his niece. I think that's really well done. There's like a big chunk of this movie where he like disappears for like 20 minutes and you're with James Franciscus, who in the commentary they refer to him as kind of like a, um, a good looking husk. Because he doesn't have much personality, and we, we've started making jokes about that because there's at least three points in the movie where these people, like, pour out their, like, entire, like, this heartwarming moment. Like, Carl Molden is like, me and, me and uh, um, I don't remember her name, take care of each other. They died, and he tells this heartwarming story, and he has her on her lap, and you obviously tell they love each other. And James Francis is like, well, I'm out. And he just gets up and, like, leaves. And there's a point where the um, character from Bird with the Crystal Plumage comes to give him some information to get back at, uh, and spite of an ex-lover and he's like and he like walks to the camera it's all dramatic i think it might be i don't know if it's a split die after shot but he's definitely in the in the foreground and you can see in the background a little bit he's like do you know why i'm doing this like he never asked he didn't care and he's just like he stole my lover and he's just like all right well he just does not give a shit about anybody's feelings it's like he is uh just straight for the journalistic story um the one more point i really want to make is I always have found Dario's killer's motives absolutely entertaining and interesting to me. And um, as Kim Newman said, and I, I've always said this about this movie, I think anybody who's seen it has probably said this, is it's a, it's a beautiful thing that the killer's motive, basically his motives for the murders are a self-fulfilling prophecy because it does the whole 
pseudo kind of bullshit science, which all these geologies are guilty of at the time. And almost every 70s movie is. We look at Horror Express with the, I, I, I took out what was in their eyeball and I put it under a microscope and all of a sudden I could see in the microscope. Four Flies has a very funny thing like that. But um, yeah, so I, I'm good on talking about this one. I should mention the annual Morricone score is fantastic and gets stuck in your head. But what else did you want to say anything else about it? I think it's all right. You said you liked it better in Burma the Crystal Plumage. Right? I did. Some guys just have to drive really fast <laughs> because their dicks don't work, I think. Um, <laughs> no, it was, a, it was a right movie. Um, I give it like four out of ten. Four out of ten. Wait, four out of five. Yeah. Four out of five. So another thing is there, this thing has the same features ported over from the Blu-ray that was released just a couple of years back. Um, yeah, I, I, this is an enjoyable one. Like I said, this is um, it's 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 really good jelly, and it has those moments that um, Dario's known for. Um, not as strong. I don't think it's as strong as Bird with the Crystal Plumage, but then again, Bird was a little bit fresher. And um, I, I don't know. You you'd say this one's better. Like I said, I, narratively speaking, I like this one better. I think it suffers from a length issue. It's it's um, almost two hours it, it's, long. Yeah, it's, it's kind of on the long side. I think there's a lot of, like... I don't want to say any unnecessary scenes, but... I, I don't know. It's it's kind of like a long movie, but it flows better than Bird of a Crystal Plumage. In that movie, they're kind of like going all over the place. We're introduced to all these different side characters. And while it does all kind of come together in the end, it's... Um, I, it, it, I think it distracts you too much from what's actually going on. While this one, it's very, you know, like, like it has, like, the right momentum. It's just on, on the long side. But from start to finish, I think I really like it. Um, I kind of, and this is, I think, a problem with, with a lot of Ajala movies, is, like, when you introduce to the villain, like, I, I don't know, he... He was only he only has one scene like the actual killer. Well, he's in the background. They you get it limited to like four or five people. Yeah. Um, and then when people start getting picked off, you're like, well, it's got to be so and so. And I think they focus too much on the uh, the gay German and uh, the the daughter. Um, as red herrings, possibly as red herrings. They spent way too much time on the red herrings and not enough with the killer. Um. But the, I mean, the the whole ending scene is, like, I think, really cool. Oh, the, the killer's demise is great. Um, yeah. They usually are very good in these. Um, they are. It actually reminded me of um, um, Don't Torture a Duckling, just bit. with the falling. Yeah, it just had, like, like a similar, like, aesthetic to you're, it. You're only a villain if you fall from a very right. far height and fall and die. Exactly. Um, I, I should mention the side character of the police officer who just tells everyone about, like, recipes. And that was a really funny gimmick to me. Um, and I loved it. And the first time you see him, you're like, is this guy like a journal? No, he's a cop. He's just telling him, and just like, and James Franciscus, again, he's telling James Franciscus, right? Yeah. He doesn't give a shit. He does not care what anybody else is doing. <laughs> and this guy's like, so my wife, she takes it, and she like bakes the ravioli. Well, to be fair, on that scene, like his like best friend was just killed. So it's kind of like, and, and this guy's like talking about his wife's ravioli. He's like, I don't fucking care. My, my friend's dead. <laughs> Oh, the, who? The photographer? The photographer, yeah. I don't know how good of friends they were, were they? Uh, he, he made it imply that they were very good friends. I mean, uh, James Franciscus shows no emotion in this movie. He's really? still a good, solid, leading man, though. I really like him, actually. It's a shame that he isn't in a whole lot. He didn't live all that long, either. We said he died at, like, 56, 57 yeah. years old. He was pretty young. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, like I was saying, uh, there's, a, there's like, um, again, the killer motives, I think, are fun and insane. <laughs> um, it's always... Um, 
like I said in the Jolly, when you're talking about it, they're either monetary reasons or insane reasons or a combination of both, or sometimes they'll seemingly start as monetary and then they become kind of a more like insane um, reasoning. And this one definitely is more of the kind of, there is monetary gain by some of the characters blackmailing and everything mm -hmm. like that. But at the end of the day, it is more of an insane killer like Bird with a Crystal Plumage or Four Flies on Grey Velvet. Um, while I always felt like Martino, who was doing a more usually mo uh, monetary gains on that. Um, the, the, the crypt scene, the cemetery is really nice looking too. They do have some nice That's set pieces scene. where they set mm -hmm. stuff like that. I mean, and uh, it's weird because it feels grounded, but it also has a, a touch of like pulp with the, the knife cane from um, Carl Baldwin and stuff like that. And the ending's fairly dark too. Yeah. Um, the, the score is, I get, again, I will repeat, it's a, it's a very good score. And this Arrow edition looks really cool and stuff and has a booklet and the hard case and everything. And they are going to do Deep Red down the line too, which I think is very cool. But it, it's just like Four Flies would be the right one to go with, right? Like all three on 4K. So we're going to read a little bit out of these books. Um, I'm going to read out of John Stanley's Creature Features. And I know someone's like, oh, they don't like the books. I kind of like the books. And um, I know that... Um, Brian Sauer would always read out of the books. Um, what would he read out of um, the guy? He, oh, jeez. He has this cult book guy, um, cult movies. It's like one of his favorite writers. He always reads out of the books. And I always like that idea. And these little review books, I think, can spark conversation between us, too, if we agree or disagree or forgot something very obvious. So, Cat of Nine Tales, three out of five stars, 1971. Carl Malden, who portrays a blind man specializing in solving crossword puzzles, considers this one of his best low-budget features, a tribute to the talents of writer-director Dario Argento. This blends mystery and psycho-tear in telling of a murderer, murderer whose blood is tainted with the homicidal tendencies. They spoil everything. This is not a very good... James Franciscus is a reporter on the killer's trail. Catherine Spock, uh, Cynthia D. Carlis, music by Ennio Morricone, and it was a scimitar, bingo, and laser, Japanese release. So, like, I don't... That review is basically just Spoiler City. And I, I mean, my, my review is two senses. It's not, it's not even worth reading. Okay, so it's it's, kind of, it's James O'Neill, Tear on Tape. Yeah, two and a half. Uh, blind modern Out of four. Teams, yeah, blind modern teams with a reporter Franciscus to catch a killer driven by a chromosome and balance a slack shot the staff of a Roman research hospital. One of Argento's weaker thrillers. This has a couple of Rivera sequences, but is edited for TV version is missing over 20 minutes of sex and violence. And really, yeah. there's not much sex. There's one sex yeah. scene, and uh, oh, I love that scene when she shows up. It's the, of course, the boss's daughter shows up to James Francis's apartment late at night, and they drink fucking milk, yeah. which is obviously tainted, and he's spilling the milk all over the fucking place. When he picks it up, it's on the floor, then he dumps it, it's on the counter, he spills some on the counter. It's like, I know it's for the scene, but there's no way that this guy is just dumping milk all over his apartment like this. Um, mm. But, like, she has, like, a tearaway shirt. She just rips it, and it's just like, yeah, she was... She was ready. She was DTF, right? Mm -hmm. She shows up late at night, and she's a tearaway shirt. It's like Velcro. <laughs> she's like a millionaire's daughter. She's wearing, she's wearing Velcro. Velcro. It's like, what the hell? Yeah. So um, those reviews were kind of harder on the movie than I think. I think this one over time has, has gotten a little bit more respect. I don't think it's the most beloved movie out of Argento's, of course. But well, you know, that that book said that, like, the one that... It was edited. It was edited. It was missing 20 minutes. Um... Maybe just the wrong twenty minutes, because it could probably stand to lose twenty minutes. I don't. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I like. Like I said, I like this one over Bird of Crystal Plumage. I think, although I do think technically Crystal Plumage is probably the better film. I think I just enjoyed this one more. 
So uh -oh. what's next? I, I would give this four out of five personally, eight out of 10, somewhere around there. Probably seven and a half out of 10, eight out of 10, somewhere around there. Um, so we have to pick a movie for next week. What would you give it? You give it what? What would I say? Four out of five? Yeah. I think four out of five is fair for it. I mean, it's, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, for next week, um, I, hell, I don't know. What's next week? Is it September? Yeah. Okay. What, what about that, that, uh, ghost story? Erotic ghost story? Do you have that? Yeah. Do you have it downloaded or... I mean, it's never... It might have a really... I do have a DVD of it, I think. If it's on Plex. You know the one I'm talking about? The Cat 3 one? Yeah, I think I have a DVD of that, too. Let's, let's watch that one. Because it looks really fun. It looks like it has, like... Like, like hand, like... No, not hand. Hand's Japanese. But You're talking like, about like a Chinese... ghost story. There's, like, three of those movies. Yeah. I think they had overseas releases, and they might be getting... Uh, uh, from Eureka might be putting those out. I can't 100% remember, but I did have... I do have a DVD, I think, of one of those as well. Well, we'll watch the DVD. I mean, how, what, what, how good can the quality actually I mean, be? I mean, it could be decent, especially if there's a Blu-ray floating around. I'll have to buy it when it's released. <laughs> I, I don't think it has one in the States yet. So, uh, yeah, um, I guess we'll do... That's going to have to be a blind spot, because neither of us have seen it, so, yeah. I guess that's going to be next. Doesn't time, matter right? if it's Blind Spot or whatever. Yes, it does. I'll have to mention it because you ain't seen as one I've seen that we pick for each other. It's got to be Blind Spot if neither of us have seen it, uh, or but, you haven't seen it. But do, does it like matter? It matters because one has an intro and one doesn't. And I don't want to screw this up, so we're done. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Okay, let's get into these questions and answers. So um, these are just some comments. Last week I asked you, what was it? Um, a great performance in a not-so-great movie. So it could have been an okay movie, a good movie, a bad movie, just a great performance in a not-so-great movie. So let's go. Liam26, um, he's just made, not all these are answers to that question, by the way. Martyrs is amazing. We'll have to check this out as other stuff. Davis Cow, that one is great, a movie I will never forget, mentioning Martyrs. Martyrs is Pretty unforgettable. Thanos 43 Infinity. Day of the Triffids is indeed originally a book by the classic science fiction writer John Wynnum, who was famous for doing many acclaimed books, including The Midwitch Cuckoos, The Kraken Waves, and Chucky. Okay. Uh, Bad Brains Whore. Hey, Dave, are you going to check out The Sadness by Raven Banner? Looks like one of the best zombie films in a long time. Picked up a DVD of Incident in a Ghostland. Looks amazing. Still haven't seen Martyrs yet. Also got Evil Dead Trap. Great vid as always. Evil Dread Trap is a lot of fun. Incident's cool. Martyrs is fantastic. Um, I definitely am going to watch The Sadness when it comes out, either to streaming or available to purchase. I will definitely rent that. Um, sounds right up my alley. I love zombie films, as you guys know, and I love Asian films, so why not? Ilk Vomit. You forgot the killer plant scenes in Jumaji. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Nick Mua. First off, I very much enjoyed your in-depth conversation with Fred Vogel. That was last week. I put um, a Fred Vogel interview up. I found this interview to be very frank, informative, and honest. Also, I love your deep bread, red bread spread. Oh, deep red bread spread. Did you buy it at Argento's gift shop? No, I've had that bread uh, bed spread forever. As for so-and-so movies with stellar performances, I'm going to go with Sir Sean Connery and Zardos. Not my favorite post-apocalyptic flick, but I've always found Mr. Connery's acting in it delicious. Daniel Harris and Rob Zombie's Halloween also deserves praise. To me, that film tries too hard to blend Carpenter's style with that of Zombie, and it doesn't really work. Still, Miss Harris's acting is fantastic. Lastly, Olivia Cook in Ouija. Though I adored Haunted House movies, this one is underwhelming. It's saving grace, Miss Cook's performance. Oh, I got one that I love. I know you have more questions, but... Um, Jeez, I can't believe I forgot his name. Uh, that's such a... I can't believe I forgot the actor's name. And I always say how much I like him. Oh, jeez. Uh, the father... Uh, the, I can't believe I can't... Um, Warren. 
Warren uh, in um, Conjuring. Love his performance in that. Um, just can't think of his name right now. Um, if someone wants to interview you, uh, if someone wants to interview you, how do you prepare? Oh, somebody wants to interview me? I mean, I would not prepare anything. I would just be ready to answer the questions. Um, but if I want to interview someone else, how do I prepare? I kind of listen to some of their other interviews, try not to repeat too many questions, and then I'll maybe watch a couple of their movies that we're going to talk about again, rewatches, listen to commentary, stuff like that. As you reviewed Brotherhood of Satan, I thought I'd ask the whole satanic panic affect your life at all growing up. Did your parents warn you to stay away from long-haired fiends with black fingernails who listen to Black Sabbath? See, I was born in 86, so it was a little bit over that. Um, no. My parents... You know, as much as my parents, they weren't overly like religious people. They, I guess they were semi-religious, but they never really got into that, um, you know, going nuts, worrying about certain things like that. My dad did tell me once, uh, if you roll around with shit, you get some on you. And he just basically meant, watch out who your friends are. Don't hang around people that have like a criminal element or anything like that because they'll bring you down. And he was right. You know, I had some friends that were dangerous, dangerous people growing up. Um, have you seen the new Candyman yet? If so, care to share your thoughts? If I do, I will review it. Uh, I've not seen it. You mentioned some evil plant movies, but which is your favorite? I mean, Little Shop of Horrors 86 has got to be my favorite, right? Um, I know Day of, uh, Deadly Spawn we talked about, but it's not a killer plant movie. That'd be my favorite if it was. Um, but I'll, I'll just mention probably Deadly I mean, it's hardly Little Shop of Horrors or, yeah. Um, Wooly 96, there's also a David Triffitt series by BBC, which was made in 81, and then 2009 miniseries, also made by BBC. I was wondering if you've seen the British TV movie Threads. I think that might be a good blind spot pick. Yes, I've seen Threads. Great stuff. Um... And, uh, yeah, he mentions he saw parts of Threads on YouTube and it stuck with me. And I did uh, know about those other Triffid movies. I ordered the 81 version. Tim Hayes, Brotherhood of Satan is one I still need to watch along with I Dismember Mama. Um, Facebook friends with the actress who was a child in both films. Uh, Gary Ricci, fake Jane Brady from the Brady Bunch Variety Hour TV series. And Floyd79 Dylan, can't wait to watch this. Also, no description through timestamps. For everybody, all the timestamps and descriptions are always below. So click the description box. You'll get links for more info, which have the descriptions of all the movies and the and the special features on there, as well as just link for the, the additional the, the movie and everything like that. I meant the everything, like all the links for everything, Instagram, Twitter. It's all in the description box with timestamps as well. So then we have Jason Bovee. Barnaby Collins, question mark. I wonder if that's any relation to Barnabas Collins or maybe Barnaby Jones. See, I called Barnabas Collins from uh, House of Dark Shadows Barnaby Collins. See, I make a mistake every time. That's absolutely hilarious to me, though. Uh, Barnaby Collins. Um, yeah, he said it gave him a chuckle and he likes to call them hacky, happy accidents. Ken Coakley, I didn't consider this film to be not so great film, but I really thought Robert Ginty on The Exterminator did a great job as a meek Vietnam veteran to bring a stone-cold killer who is more ruthless than the criminals he preyed upon. There was an Exterminator 2 with Mario Van Peebles as the villain and Frankie Fazan, who was in all the Hannibal Lecter films, played his best friend and army buddy. Ginty played him differently, making him much less brooding. There was supposed to be 9 to 12 film cycle, but that fell through. I was lucky enough to see the first one at Medford Quad Drive-In in 1981 with Excuse from new york i saw donna did at the same drive-in the same year that is awesome um yeah i, I mean i i really like exterminators pretty awesome and uh Fazan is, is great uh, i know exactly what you're talking about he's the prison guard in those movies in uh hannibal lecter films troy haworth awesome uh christopher lee and the man with a golden gun peter cushing and corruption corruption so sleazy john cassavetes and the fury al pacino and the people i know and then Philip Hitton, Garrett Graham as Stanley Putterman in Terrorvision. Terrorvision is a national treasure. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, 
Joachim uh, Johansson, Jackie Gleason and the Smokey and the Bandit sequels, Corey Walter, John Lithgow and Raising Kane. Movie was mad, but I love Lithgow's dual role performance. And Vincent Piera uh, <laughs> mentions to Corey Walter, Raising Kane is awesome. Zach Killingsworth, uh, Cher, Burglesque, and LOL, Wagon Wheel, Watuzi. Tim Walker, Donald Pleasant in about 60% of his movies. How dare you. Myers, Haddonfield coming, paycheck. That's what I say about all those like latter holiday, uh, Halloween sequels. I love Donald Pleasant, one of my favorite actors, but still. Matthew Cantor, Tony Todd, Candyman 3, Donald Gibson. I mean, David Gibson, Donald Gibb is who I was thinking of. That's Ogre from Vision Nerds, but David Gibson. A real recent one, Lupita Nyong'o in Us. I love Us, but her performance is better than anything in Us. And, or should I say, most of the cast in both Peel's films. Come on. Uh, Dustin Mills, Rod Julia, and Street Fighter. I kind of love the movie, but it's a turd sandwich. That is 100% accurate. Um, I'll never forget when you quoted that line in Street Fighter where you're like, When I graced your village, it was the greatest moment of your life. For me... It was Tuesday. And you're just like, you're right, dead on. Such a good performance in that movie. Uh, Brian Papadrea agrees. Raul Julia in any movie is worth the price of a mission. Um, and Dustin says the man fully committed to every role. He never fails to be totally captivating. And uh, Brian says he's the best part of Coppola's Once from the Heart, but he's usually the best in everything. Definitely Street Fighter. Matthew Hudson, good pick. I'm trying to think about movies I don't like with people in them. I do. It's not easy. Daniel Carlson, all the performances in Poltergeist 2 are amazing, especially Julian Beck's, even if the story is not as good as the first one. Okay, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. Mark Humphreys, Peter Cushing in Blood Blind Terror, a Blood Beast Terror, and a few others that spring to mind. Yeah, I remember that movie being kind of a slog. Matthew Hudson, David Warner, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Youth. Good choice. He genuinely seems to be treating the script with dignity when he totally could have phoned that shit in. Everett Young, I mean, the quintessential one I always uh, thought was Ian McGregor in the Star Wars prequels. BJ Colangelo, Parker Posey, and Blade Trinity. I love Blade Trinity, but I recognize most people think it's garbage because people hate dumb fun. But she is flawless. I haven't seen Blade Trinity in years. What do we got here? Um... So I, I'm a big fan of Master Universe, so I mentioned that movie. And Langella is so good in that movie. I, I kind of compared that to that. Glenn G. Worthington, John Lithgow and Pet Cemetery remake. Good call. Justin Morales, John Goodman has fled Flintstone. Good call. Derek B., Michael Caine's eyebrows and uh, Deadly Crown. And Matt Hudson replies, one could make the Michael Caine argument for Jaws 4 as well. Derek B. replies, I only say this because it's so funny. Matthew Hudson, just his eyebrows for this movie, though. <laughs> just- Jason, uh, James D. Cokes, a film I thought for the director was under par and just didn't click with me, Gangs of New York, but uh, Daniel Day-Lewis was absolutely fantastic in it. You know, I don't hate Gangs of New York, but Daniel Day-Lewis is above that movie. And I, I mean, that's like such a great performance. That performance makes that movie. Jaramal Potter, uh, yeah, definitely Gangs of New York, incredibly flawed film, but Daniel Day-Lewis fucking rocks and created one of the most memorable bad guys of the last few decades. Peter England, Michael Shannon and Werner Herzog, my son, my son, what have you done? Eric Whining, Michael Moriarty and Q the Winged Serpent. I think the movie is good, but his performance is excellent. Yeah, it's, it's, it's better than the movie. The movie's good, though. Jason Lindbergh, Robert Patrick and Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. Come on. Uh, Sam Edwards, Octavia Spencer and Ma, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Josh Brolin in Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. Although the rest of the cast was pretty serviceable, these two stood out for me. Daniel Washington and Man on Fire. Uh, Dieter Leiser in Human Centipede 1. Stanley Tucci in The Lovely Bones. Frank Langella in Master Universe. I love the movie, but it's not great. Leonardo DiCaprio in The Great Gatsby. There's probably a ton. Tony Araro, Richard Brake in Rob Zombie's 31. Agreed. Jamal Potter, this is going to sound really trite, but I always thought The Dark Knight was an incredibly average movie that featured a performance by you-know-who that really elevated it. The rest of the cast just looked like they were sleepwalking their way to the bank. 
not going to disagree with that much. I thought Aaron Eckhart was good in it as well. Um, and that's about it. I remember, I shouldn't be bad mouthing that movie because I know it's beloved and I don't think it's a bad movie, but I do think that performance is much better than the movie deserved. Um, and I think without that performance, but you can't do that. That's kind of funny. Like I know people were talking about that with Sleepaway Camp. They're like without Sleepaway Camp, that movie, the ending's not very good. It's like, yeah, but that's like saying ice cream is not good with sugar, right? It's part of the recipe for the movie's success. So ice cream not good with sugar? Of course it's fucking not. Rye Guy, Brad Pitt in California is one of that immediately comes to mind. Not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's fun one for me, and I love it regardless. Has a lot of deep subtext to it, but Brad elevates that film beyond belief and created a super memorable baddie. Mr. Early uh, Grace was still pretty early on in his career, too. And Brad outshines them all, honestly. I also would love to give some love to some underrated actors who just don't get enough love in general, even if they are in dogshit films. I will watch them because they elevate the material that much more for me. See, this could have been a future question. Actors who never let you down. So he says John Carroll Lynch, Dan Stevens, Charlie Hunnam, Josh Stewart, and Boyd Hulbrick. Chris Reeves in Village of the Dam as well. Not one of my favorite Carpenter flicks, but still an enjoyable one. Reeves makes it a better film all around. But to be fair... It is Reeves. Um, He also mentions Tom Cruise, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Clint Eastwood, Kurt Russell, and Heath Ledger, and almost anything as well. Justin Long is another one for me, too. Phenomenal actor through and through. Although uh, a lot of the people either love or hate Jeepers Creepers, but it's where I first discovered Long and where he got his start, too. Say what you will about the first Jeepers Creepers, but Long is the ultimate highlight of the film. What he's doing and how he portrays fear is nothing short of amazing and brilliant. Besides the Creeper and its overall design, Long sold me from day one. And then Tom Lee Ryder says Joaquin Phoenix and the Joker, which I think is a good movie, but uh, Joaquin is, is fantastic in it. So, question of the week. This week is your favorite folk horror film. So, best horror film, best folk horror film ever. So there we go. And that's in honor of that box set coming out and some of the folk horror films that I've talked about recently. Uh, before I go, I want to give a couple Patreon shout-outs. Matt Wells, thank you very much. And uh, Eerie Crips and Naked Chicks, also, thank you for your Patreon donation. And I don't remember if I gave David Scott a shout-out or not, or David Luton, both of them. I can't remember if I gave you guys shout-outs. So here's a shout-out. Thank you uh, for your contribution. And um, whatever your level is, get at me, and I'll add your name to the hat or do whatever kind of uh, contribution level you uh, shout at me. So anyways, let's hop into that update all right this update is super short so i did it all for you return to salem's lot all for you return to salem's lot uh i guess if anybody doesn't get that reference it's the omen but uh yeah i've never seen this one uh larry cohen directed it and i think samuel fuller's in it that's basically what i heard but yeah that's very cool to finally have this on blu-ray shout factory release um you know i've never seen the first salem's lot that's a big blind spot on my point um and i know maybe i'll watch both of them have fun with it. Really want to watch the first Salem's Lot. Reggie Nalder plays the vampire, and it's you know Toby Hooper movie. So Stephen King. It's just weird. It's just like probably one of the biggest blind spots I have. But anyways, yeah, um, had to grab this one. Uh, check it out. It's kind of weird. So I try to grab a lot of the ones I have on DVD that I never thought would hit Blu-ray. <laughs> I never even thought this one would hit DVD. But anyways, that's Return to Salem's Lot. Back to the video. Okay, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um...
Stop! I want to restart. You distracted me. 